To me, it's always a great thought to think about someone succeeding. I like to see people who have devoted themselves to do great things, and it may be that they're a musician and they're able to uh, play some concerto or something on a piano or some other instrument and see them succeed. I like to see people who have worked hard in sports to be able to succeed. You look at the effort they put in it, you look and see how they've accomplished it, and then you see that all of that labor has been rewarded. When you start looking at churches in the Bible, you can see some churches that just seemingly made every mistake that you could make. The church at Corinth comes to mind. You see other congregations that were privileged, like the church at Ephesus, to have Paul as their preacher for almost three years and have working with them such talented young men as Timothy. But yet when you come to the church at Philippi, this church did well. This church stands out as an example of those people who put the time and the effort in to be a faithful and a godly church. When you and I step back, we ask the question, who is responsible for your salvation? Who's responsible for my salvation? Listen to Jeremiah in chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. Listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images, with foreign idols? The harvest is past. The summer has ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? Jeremiah cries. Jeremiah pleads. My people, they're lost. They need to be saved. One thing is certain. They could not blame God. They could not look at God and say, Why aren't we your people saved? Because in 1 Timothy 2, 4, as we studied this morning, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We learn from Isaiah chapter 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. All of those passages come to the conclusion, God is not responsible if I'm not saved. In fact, I want to... Draw your attention to one very valuable passage. When Isaiah the prophet was looking at the condition of Israel, God is marveling, God is wondering, why have my people left me? 
He said, now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up. He cleared it out at stones. He planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. What more could I have done in my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are that pleasant or his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. God said, I want you to look at my people. They're like a vineyard. I expected everything to go well. It did not. Who is to blame? Is it God because he planted a vineyard? Is it God because he expected? No, it's our problem. Just like Israel. If you and I look at ourselves and we say we're not in the right relationship with God, we bear the responsibility. But you see, there's a great lesson in the book of Philippians Beginning with Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. We're going to study through uh, the verses at 16. And we're going to look at the command that is issued in verses 12 and 13. We'll spend quite a bit of time on that. Then we're going to look at the concern that he has. How will people respond to the command that God offers? Will you do so Willingly, lovingly, or will you do so hesitating? And then finally, the completion of it in verse 16. Let's look again at verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, or not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. I want you to notice as Paul begins with the Philippians because we're trying to learn from them. We're trying to to see them as a pattern. He talks about their past. As you have always obeyed. When Paul came in and established the church at Philippi in Acts 16 with the conversion of Lydia and then right after that the conversion of the jailer, that congregation began working with Paul. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 5. Philippians chapter 4 verse 15. They have been committed from the very beginning. He said, you've always obeyed. And not just when Paul was there. You know, quite often I can remember as a child our teacher looking at us and saying, I've got to go to the office. I want you children to obey and be quiet while I'm gone. Just as soon as the teacher walked out the door, spit wads began to fly. Y'all know exactly what happened. Teacher would come back and say, did I hear some noise down there? Oh, not us, not us. Paul said, you've always obeyed, not just when I was with you. Then he talks about the present time. 
He says, now much more in my absence. While I'm not here, you're still doing what's right. You think about a congregation that you can go and establish them. You work with them a short period of time and then you go on to some other place. Do they fall away? Do they give in? No, 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 not these people. Their past and their present have demonstrated it. But then he says, there's some potential for the future. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Then we get to that word work. The very idea of work and salvation makes some of our denominational friends upset. In fact, many of them say, well, you folks in your church, you only believe in a works-based salvation. And what they will do, they'll point us to some passages like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul said, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God or not of works, lest any man or anyone should boast. Not of works. You're not saved by works. Or you can go to other passages like Romans chapter 4, verse 2. For Abraham was, if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Verse 4, for to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And they would say, if you're out here and you're working to get to go to heaven, then you're not looking at God for grace. You're looking at payment or debt for what you have done. But I would remind you also that the Bible says that works are important. In James chapter 2, verse 14, What does it profit, my brethren, if a man says that he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 20, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Verse 24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Well, how do you reconcile these two? You've got Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and then you have James chapter 2. Are these somehow in conflict with one another? Do we have contradiction in God's word? Absolutely not. Works are necessary, but they're not sufficient to save us. No man can be saved by the works he does, but he must have works in order to be saved. God has designated that we do them. In fact, if you keep reading in Ephesians chapter 2, and you go to verse 10, for we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Oh, he's not saying you don't do them. It's just they're not necessary to save you. And I would remind you that if you're reading Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, this is written to people who are already Christians. So when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, we need to know what that means. Well, let's look at the word, work. If you're looking at the original language, it's in the imperative mood, which makes it a command. This is something that you must do. It's also in the present tense, which indicates ongoing action. So what he's doing, he is commanding a lifestyle. 
He's not just saying, you do this little one thing over here and you've got it taken care of. No, no, it's much more than that. This is a life that you must live. Work out. I remember being in a class in trigonometry over 40 years ago. And uh, the teacher of that class was a member of the church, Brother Jerry Killingsworth, member of the Fet Alabama Congregation. Brother Killingsworth was ambidextrous. He could write with one hand and erase with the other. Long arms. He'd write with this one and erase with this one. You had to copy it down. And his favorite phrase in class, let's burn it out. What do you mean? Let's, let's finish it all the way to the end. Let's bring it to a completion. That's the word that's here. Work out. Bring it to a completion. Don't stop halfway. Continue to work for the Lord. Your own. He's not talking about you're doing something for someone else so that they're accomplishing something. He's talking about what you have an obligation to do yourself. Work out, complete your own, and then he says salvation. This is in prospect. Do you remember Matthew 24, verse 13? But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Or Hebrews 10, 36 through 39, for you have need of endurance that, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. You and I have the promise of eternal life. We have it in prospect, but we need to make sure that we work it all the way to the end. But then he says with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. You need to realize how important it is that you are actively participating in your being saved. First Corinthians 10 verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Or Luke 17 10, So likewise, when you have done all things that you were commanded, say we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. I need to realize that if I am serving the Lord, I need to think I've got to do everything that the Lord wants me to do. I've got to be actively involved in His work. And then He says, God works in you. We sing the song, God has no hands but our hands. You see, I believe God has more than our hands. He has everybody's hands. But to do the work that God wants us to do, He expects me to use my hands, my feet, my mouth, my talents, and He expects you to use yours as well. In Hebrews 13, Now may the God of peace who brought up the Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, Make you complete in every good work to do His will, working what is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So you first have the command, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then there's a concern. Let's look now at verses 14 and 15. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless 
children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. If I were to ask you how important is attitude, we all know that there are people who, once they're told to do something, will do it, but they do so begrudgingly. There's other people that you can tell them or ask them to do something, and they do so with a smile on their face. Will you do this? Sure. How do you want me to do it? Where do you want me to go? And you exhibit that kind of attitude. I think about the Macedonians that Paul speaks of to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 19 or 12, For if there is first the willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what one does not have. If there's a willing mind, Am I willing to put myself out there? You go to verse 7 of chapter 9. So let each one give as he purposes in his own heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. When it comes time to me to serve God, do I look at my service as something, okay, I've got to check this box off because God expects me to do it. I don't really want to do it. First Peter 4 verse 9 says, Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. In the context, I believe the situation is the church is suffering. There's some brethren who've had their goods and their livelihood confiscated. And let's say I'm your brother and I live on the same street as you do and I know that you're suffering. You don't have any food in your house. How do I look at being hospitable toward you? Do I look at it as something I've just got to do and I grumble about it? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, he says, nor complain as some of them complain and were destroyed by the destroyer. There were people among the children of Israel as they came out in that wilderness wandering were just complaining about everything. The grumbler is hardly blameless and harmless. He's a discourager. He's a dark cloud. In the Lord's church, you and I, if we want this congregation to be one that pleases God and we want to be blameless, we want to be harmless, we ought to be able to say, What do you need me to do? And smile while we do it and want to do it and participate in it that way. You see, in contrast to those who grumble, those who complain, there are those who shine as lights in the world. And believe me, people can see the light of those who love and care. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, You are the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its flavor, how will it, shall it be seasoned? It is good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on the hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, we can either be the grumblers, the complainers, or we can be the willing servants. And so as Paul says 
with a command, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Then he turns and says, but do so without grumbling. Then Paul turns and looks at the completion in verse 16. Holding fast the word of life that so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I had not run in vain or labored in vain. When you think about what Paul is interested in, holding fast the word of life or holding it forth as some translations say, putting the word of life out there for other people to see by the way that you live. The word of life, according to John chapter 6, verse 68, is the words of Christ. You remember, Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Or John writing, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which are our eyes, our hands have handled, or looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, the message. People need to see Jesus living in us. But now Paul's idea is so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. When Jesus comes again, Paul's looking at the church at Philippi and he's got a smile on his face. These are those that get to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, I would like to think that on the day of judgment, That when the Lord is pronouncing judgment on each of us, I hope I first of all get to hear well done. That's the first thing. Then I'd like to be able to look and see a lot of your faces. Well done, well done, well done. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. His goal was for the churches to be ready to meet Jesus. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 19. For what is our hope? or joy, or crown of rejoicing, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? That's what we want to accomplish. We want to complete it. We don't want to just start out great and then fall off. You know, a lot of times, especially mission congregations, you go and you will establish the church, the people will begin to accept the teachings of God's Word, and then sometimes that work just begins to fall apart. Other times the work begins to flourish and grow. Paul said what we want to do is when Jesus comes is to be able to rejoice that you can be our joy, you can be our crown. No one wants for their work to be in vain. I can't tell you how many times in history I have built something only to have somebody come behind me and say, that wasn't good enough. we got to tear it out and build it all over again. You don't want to think all the time the effort you put in has been in vain. And Paul said, "I, I don't want to have worked, labored in vain for you. I want it to be brought to a completion. Well, now here's what congregations are made up of, each of us as individuals. There was the Lydia. There was a jailer in that congregation. How many others do we know about? I I don't know their names. But in the congregation here at Bobby Branch, where are you in your journey of faith? 
Are you just limping along, just getting by? Or are you putting some real effort in your Bible studies? Are you putting real effort into trying to say, I can be of help here or there. I can do something that God would have me to do. Have you begun? Have you dropped out? Are you pressing on? I want to end with Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. This is where Paul was. This is where we are. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Jesus Christ has also laid hold of me. Here's the thing. None of us have reached where we need to be or ought to be. And so in each of us, we ought to be listening to that phrase of Paul, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, what a wonderful privilege you have to be able to respond to the gospel. God has granted you one more time to be here, to be encouraged, to obey the gospel. When we sing the invitation song, please come forward, sit on the front bench up here, tell me you want to become a Christian. We'll baptize you for the remission of your sins. And if you're one of those Christians and you're looking at your life and say, he's been talking about me all night. I've not been doing what God wanted me to do, not living like God wanted me to live, and I'm ready to, to make it right. Would you come together as we stand and sing?